In standing for the reading of God's Word as we turn together in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, it is always useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby and you'll find this morning's text on page 881. For the last 16 months or so, we've been working our way through the Gospel according to Luke. We have only about two months left, and and if you have been with us over the last 16 months, or maybe for just some long period of time, you may have noticed how often in this gospel you'll find Jesus eating with people. Uh, One commentator says it's as though Jesus is always coming from a meal, sitting down at a meal, or going to a meal. Now what we of course find in our text today, which is the first 23 verses of Luke chapter 22, is the most significant meal ever eaten this side of heaven. So let me go ahead and read our text for us and then pray briefly for God's blessing on the study of his word and then we will begin together. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to you through his word. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them, in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepare it there. They went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray once again. Father, we do come to Your Word this morning, thanking You that it is living and active, that it is perfect, that it is precious, that it is 
powerful, and we pray that through it the Spirit would do a mighty work among us, opening our eyes to behold its truth, opening our hearts to follow with faith and obedience. So help us, we pray, to hear with eagerness and earnestness, with hearts ready to respond to the Spirit's leading. Help me to preach, as your word says I must, with boldness and with clarity. We do pray all of these things, that you might be exalted and glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Virtually all of the best-known plays in history follow a similar three-act structure. And the final act, the third act, is technically called by playwrights the catastrophe. It's the moment of climax and a resolution. And I grew up in a home that particularly loved a musical that followed this three-act scheme. And when you got to the final act, it kicked off with a musical number titled The Point of No Return. And one of the main characters in that song sings forth, Our Passion Play Has Now at Last Begun. And we come to a text this morning that is the beginning of the final act in the story of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. The passion play that is Passion Week comes to its culminating moment there on Thursday of Passion Week that we look at our text today. This passion play of Jesus Christ leading to his suffering and death has now at last begun as by the end of our text today, we'll only be roughly 18 hours away from Jesus dying on a cross. And so if you've been with us over the last five weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' words and ways on Passion Week, which is the Sunday between His triumphal entry and His resurrection. So what we've seen in recent weeks is on Sunday of Passion Week, Jesus showed up into Jerusalem making a triumphal entry on a donkey. Then it was on Monday of Passion Week that He cleansed the temple. And all throughout Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're told that he is teaching in the temple. And the last couple weeks, we've just been looking at Jesus' teaching on Tuesday in the temple. And we ended up last week finishing at the end of chapter 21 with Jesus finally leaving the temple at the end of Tuesday evening. And he had just predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. And so as we pick up the story today, it actually covers pretty much all of Wednesday and Thursday. And if you noticed as we were reading the text just a couple of minutes ago, there is a dominant theme. There's this like major symphonic movement going on in the scripture passage before us this morning, which is simply Passover. Over and over, Luke emphasizes that Passover is happening. If you just glance down at verse 1 again, you'll notice that Luke is recounting for us Passover is drawing near. And skip down to verse 7. He is talking then about the day of Passover. Skip down to verse 14. We have now come to the hour of Passover. So it's like Luke is taking this camera, this gospel camera, and recording for us, zooming in on what we must see about the Passover and how it relates to Jesus Christ, which we could summarize in this simple statement, which is indeed, I think, the main summary of our text. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. And you see that work out in a few different ways, but of course it comes to its consummate moment by the end of our text in what we call the Lord's Supper. So you might be in here today and and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you've heard Christians before for many years or every so often refer to this meal called the Lord's Supper. And maybe you've wondered what it is that Christians believe and why they do what they do. 
at the Lord's Supper. Well, this is a text I think that will help you out. You know, kids, this is a, a wonderful way in which you can understand what the Bible is doing with salvation, how Jesus fulfills all of this old expectation that you find from Genesis all the way through to his arrival. And of course, what we need to see this morning is the text is not so much about debates that theologians have tended to have regarding various parts of the Lord's Supper. It's less about the meal itself than the Christ who is the substance of that meal, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. So there's just three simple sections to the text. We want to walk through it under three simple headings. The first part in verses 1 through 6 we'll give some time to. The second part in verse 7 through 13 we'll give a little bit of time to. And then the third part, which is verse 14 through the end, we'll give most of our time to. So first, in verses 1 through 6, we see plotting against the lamb. Look down again at verse 1. Luke says, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So kids, do you know what the Bible teaches about Passover? Do you know where it shows up in the Bible? Well, you can turn later on today and you find it in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, particularly chapters 12 and 13. And if you don't know the story, of course, there in Exodus at the beginning of that book, we find the nation of Israel in bondage and slavery in Egypt. By chapter 2, they're crying out to Yahweh for deliverance from their oppression. Yahweh hears them and sends a redeemer. That redeemer's name is Moses. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. But Pharaoh, of course, his heart is hard before the Lord. And he doesn't want to let the Israelites go. And so what God does is he sends a series of plagues to force Pharaoh's hand. And the final plague, which finally brings about the redemption of Israel from Egypt, is what we call the Passover. Because you remember, God promised that he was going to send the angel of death upon Egypt. And that angel was going to go throughout the land on this night and was going to kill the firstborn in every home. And there was but one way that the angel would pass over the house, was if the blood of a lamb was smeared on the doorposts of that home. The angel would see it and pass by, and the firstborn in that home would not die. And so it's from that point forward that Israel finds its redemption at God's hand of power and majesty out of Egypt. And in that point forward, through the rest of Israel's history, every year they were commanded by God to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. This feast that commemorated, that remembered God's majestic work of redeeming them out of Egypt. And in the life of an ordinary Israelite, by the time Jesus arrives in the first century A.D., Passover was second only to the Day of Atonement, to Yom Kippur, in terms of the day of the most significance, spiritual significance in their life together. So what you would have at this time in Jesus' day, you would have some 250,000 people descend upon Jerusalem for the week of Passover. Some scholars have numbered it as high as 2.2 million people showing up in Jerusalem. Whatever the exact number is, what we know is tens of thousands of Passover lambs would have been sacrificed on the afternoon of Passover in Jerusalem. And then families would gather around a lamb that evening and they would essentially reenact the Passover meal, remembering what God had done in delivering them. Of course, even in that moment, looking forward to a new exodus that would bring forth final deliverance from their oppressors. 
final deliverance from their enemies. And so while this intense piety is going on in the midst of Jerusalem, this Passion Week in Jesus Christ's life, there's also going on the worst kind of treachery. Because look at verse 2. The chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. And you need to notice the resolve there of the leaders, because the question isn't, should we put Jesus to death? The question is, well, how can we do it in a way that doesn't ignite a political riot? Because what, of course, they knew at this time is that many crowds, the majority of the crowds, were still devoted to Jesus. And if they arrested Jesus, in the view of all the public, they would have insurrection on their hands, which is especially a bad thing during Passover week, because the Roman Empire was a little bit scared by Passover week. You had all these Jews showing up in Jerusalem. They always had this fear of fomenting political insurrection. And so they sent extra guards, they sent extra leaders, extra authorities to make sure that there was strict control on Jerusalem during this especially intense spiritual week. So the leaders are trying to figure out a way that they can take Jesus without anybody noticing, lest they, of course, stir up some sort of riot and maybe even as a result lose their political influence because of Rome crushing that riot. So it's in some ways like they're playing a a spiritual game of chess match with Jesus. They want to checkmate him, but they need a pawn for their offensive tactic, and they find one. Look at verse 3 through 6. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Judas went away and conferred with the Sanhedrin how he might betray him to them. Of course, the religious leaders are glad and agreed to give Judas money. So Judas consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. And there's two things that you need to see in verses 3 through 6. First of which is the devil's hatred of Jesus. The last time we really gave much attention to Satan in the Gospel of Luke was all the way back in chapter 4 when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus, you might recall, resisted every temptation. And then by the end of that scene, chapter 4, verse 13, we're told the devil fled Jesus looking for an opportune time. And by verse 6 of our text, he now has the opportunity in this man named Judas, one of the twelve apostles. So students, I hope that you recognize that Satan indeed is real, that he hates Jesus with a cruelty that you probably cannot fathom its depth of spite and anger. If you're in Christ Jesus, what the Bible tells us, Satan's stance towards you is that of a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And parents, it's always part of raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to help your kids realize the devil is real, that he opposes the covenant children of the Lord and will tempt them will give them schemes and devices to lead them astray. It's why the great Puritan Thomas Brooks in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, begins by saying, Christ, the Word, our hearts, and Satan's devices are the four things to be most studied and searched. But you don't need to just see the devil's hatred of Jesus. You also want to notice the pattern of Judas's betrayal. Because again, look at verse 3, how it begins. Satan entered into Judas. John's parallel account in John 13 says, Satan put it in to Judas's heart to betray Jesus. So what you need to understand is Judas is listening to Jesus. I'm sorry, listening 
to Satan. And then by verse 4, you notice that first phrase in verse 4? He went away from Jesus. Do you want to know the, the recipe of Satan for betrayal? Listen to the devil and leave Jesus. Now we don't know exactly why, even though there is this popular view that Judas betrayed Jesus just for 30 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly why. The gospel authors are much more restrained in explaining Judas's motives in overthrowing his Lord. The simple point is that someone close to Jesus, as close as anyone could be to Jesus, was the one that betrayed the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, reminding us, doesn't it, remind us that proximity to Jesus, nearness, closeness to Christ, is no guarantee of true conversion. So Judas is plotting against the Lamb, and now we see in the next part of our text, preparation, preparing for the Lamb, namely two men, John and Peter. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. So Passover preparation for these two men meant likely they were going to go to the temple. They were going to oversee the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. They were going to make sure it was roasted according to the laws of the time. Then they were going to bring all of the food back to this room that needed to be furnished appropriately, set up in a particular way with all the food, with all the dishes, with all the wine in order to make sure that the Passover feast is observed obediently. And they, of course, say to Jesus, if you just notice the next couple of verses, well, where are we going to find a place? And Jesus clearly has a plan in mind. He gives them very specific directions of how to go into Jerusalem and find this man, which would have been striking because normally men didn't carry jars of water around at this time. They're going to find a man, and he's going to lead him to a house. They're going to talk to the master of that house and find a large furnished upper room. And many scholars have said the instructions of Jesus Christ are so specific and to the point, uh, clearly he had planned beforehand uh, what was going to happen, which is certainly possible. Or, of course, it could be yet another example of our Savior's sovereignty and control of all things, even leading up to this night when he's going to be portrayed. So whichever it is, the thing that we need to see from preparing for the Lamb, this second scene, is the truth that Jesus is in control of everything that is happening, leading up to these final hours of his life. So Judas is plotting against the Lamb, John and Peter are preparing for the Lamb. And finally, in verse 14 through 23, as we spend most of our time this morning, the call is partaking of the Lamb. For some reason, earlier this week, I was reflecting back on all of these writing classes I've taken in years of education, all these books that I was made to read in years of education, and realizing I learned so little in my years of education on the subject of writing, except one particular point. In all the classes, in all the books I've read, I remember this. The best writers show they don't merely tell. The best writers show, they don't merely tell. And of course, it ought not to be surprising to us when Jesus comes to this night of his betrayal. The climax of the catastrophe is on the way in the life of Jesus Christ. He wants his disciples to understand exactly what it is that he's about to do in his suffering there at the cross of Calvary. And what we notice in the rest of our passage is he doesn't teach them mere theories. He shows them through a meal what he's about to do. He enacts this divine drama through simple elements of what is going to happen in just hours of time at the cross. 
And so you notice in verse 14, Luke is setting the stage for us. Jesus is reclining at table at the hour of Passover in this furnished upper room. So kids, if you want to kind of picture the scene, you've got a large upper room in a home. There's a big, long, rectangular table in that room. Around three sides of that table, there would have been cushions laid for people to sit on, for these 13 men to recline on in order to eat this Passover meal. And so as the disciples are now seated They're now ready to begin this Passover feast. Of course, they're looking at their Lord. They're looking at their teacher, wondering what he's going to say first. And look at what he says in verse 15. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's a sentence I find that often goes just kind of overlooked in our study of the Lord's institution of his supper. Because it's phrase, I've earnestly desired. It's an interesting one. In the Greek, it more literally could be translated with desire I have greatly desired. It's used in other places in the New Testament speaking of intensity of passion. This kind of earnest longing, setting one's heart single-mindedly and solely on something particular. And it's striking to me because he's giving this covenant meal, as we'll see in just a minute, this new covenant institution of a sacrament for his people to 12 men, one of whom he knows is about ready to betray him, the other whom he knows, Peter, who's about ready to deny him three times, and all the other ones are getting ready to desert him. Yet what does he say? I have waited to eat this meal with you. And I hope that's an encouragement to you because some of you need to know when you come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord is not sitting there begrudgingly, unwillingly, indifferently towards his people. He earnestly desires. I desire with great desire an intensity of passion to sit and dine with my people. And as he begins to go through the Passover meal, transforming it into this sacrament we would call of the new covenant, we first see it's an eschatological meal. And I recognize that that language is clunky. Even my preaching professor said, don't ever say that in a sermon eschatological, but it is exactly what Jesus is saying, isn't it, in verse 16 through 18? Notice what he says to the disciples, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take it and divide it amongst yourselves. I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It's a meal that's pointing forward to the last things, pointing forward to the finality of all things. That Jesus is saying he's not going to eat of this meal until the kingdom finally arrives when he comes again at the end of the age to bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. Surely he's giving us some sense of an echo, some sense of a, of a sounding of Revelation chapter 19 where we're told the bridegroom is coming for his bride and he's going to bring with him the wedding feast of the Lamb. Looking forward to that day, Jesus says, is part of faithfully remembering him at this supper. But it's also a gospel meal. Look at verse 19. He took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, of course, we find out in the Gospel of John, particularly John chapter 6, is the bread sent from heaven. He's this pure spiritual manna on which all believers must feed in order to live. He's the Passover bread that we must eat if we're ever going to be saved. But there's something else interesting going on, I think, there in the upper room on that night so long ago. Because if you just reround redemptive history all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you would find the devil coming to tempt Eve, and he was tempting her with verbs. Take and eat. 
for you'll be like God if you do. And then if you especially recount the other gospel authors as they're talking about Jesus' words of institution, here he comes so many years later saying, take and eat of me because I'm the one that undoes the curse that fell upon mankind through the sin of Adam and Eve. This is my body which is given for you. It is a gospel meal. It's also, we notice in verse 20, a covenantal meal. Look at what Jesus says. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew in Mark's gospel has Jesus saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which was a phrase that would have been ingrained in every devoted Jew's mind at this time. Because it went all the way back again to the story in Exodus. God redeems Israel out of Egypt. He inaugurates this covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai. And to seal that relationship in Exodus 24, the blood of the covenant is sprinkled upon the people, sealing them in this divine, privileged relationship. Our text, of course, has Jesus saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which harkens back to another Old Testament text, doesn't it? Jeremiah 31, where the prophet was proclaiming there, predicting the new covenant that was coming along the way. And if you want to Read it later on today. You can find it, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. And one of the central glories of the new covenant, Jeremiah says, is going to be the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness, we know, that comes through only the blood of Jesus Christ shed for his own people. And so what we're seeing in this passage is not just that Jesus is the Passover lamb who cleanses his people from their sin. He's also the covenant keeper who seals his people in his blood. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. A couple years ago, Google did this study that they titled The Rhythm of Food, as they alone seemed to have the power to do. They were discerning people's minds as it relates to food, because they just took search entries on Google related to food to see if they could map out any particular trends in America related to what people think about food. So a couple of things they figured out was about 15 years ago, the ordinary diet trends in America meant that people were earnestly searching for fat-free foods. But some 13 years on, people wouldn't care about that anymore. They wanted vegan foods. And then they even took specific foods to show how seasonal was the interest in a particular fruit or a particular drink. Of course, one of the most common ones is how nobody searches for pumpkin spice lattes until September shows up, and it's only about two months that people are earnestly looking to find such a drink, and then it disappears for another nine or ten months. And the reason I tell you that is because as the world continues to change, as nations rage, as empires come and go, in the history of Christianity, bread and wine have always remained constant. Because it is at the table that we call the Lord's Supper that we meet Jesus Christ. That we know through things we can taste, through things we can smell, through things we can touch. What it means that our Savior died on the cross in our place. So what I want to do as we begin to close our time and even notice our last few verses. Is just point out three specific things that the Lord's Supper is a summary of. We might say it this way. First of all, the Supper is a meal of consummation. Millions, and that is true, millions of Passover lambs had been slaughtered in the thousands of years between Israel's exodus from Egypt and the arrival of Jesus Christ. Millions. Reminding God's people 
that something else was on the way. Blood that would be shed once and for all, perfect and precious to pay the penalty for sin. And what we see in our text is that Lamb has come, and His name is Jesus Christ, the new covenant in His blood poured out on God's people. So if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that Christians do make a big deal about the blood of Jesus Christ. Didn't we just sing it a few moments ago? Nothing but the blood of Jesus This is all our hope and peace because it's only through the blood of Christ that you can be forgiven of your sins, that you can be sealed in a covenant relationship with God, that your conscience can be cleansed, as the Bible says, from dead works. And so the question might be for you this morning, like the old gospel hymn would sing, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because as Christ comes, He's the consummation of all the Old Testament expectation of salvation. Everything the Old Testament points to finds its climactic collision in this one who is soon to be slain at the cross of Calvary. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that consummation. But the Lord's Supper is also a meal of confrontation. For look at what we're told in verse 21 and 22. Jesus says, like a cold wind blowing through the fiery flame of warmth of piety in that moment. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. We do need to say a couple of things about this confrontation with Judas there at the first Lord's Supper. Uh, The first thing to note, students, if you just look down again at verse 22. What you see there is the Bible holding something in tension that has tripped up so many people throughout the ages. The Bible, which proclaims the reality of God's divine sovereignty over all things. It has been determined that the Son is going to go to His death. Yet the Bible simultaneously declaring man is responsible for his choices. Woe to that man who has laid his hand against the Lord. And so we want to be people that take God's word for what it's worth. That we dare not divide and tear asunder what the Bible doesn't. That God is sovereign over all things and we are simultaneously responsible for our own decisions. We tear not asunder what God has brought together or in the memorable language of Charles Spurgeon, we dare not divide friends that are reconciled to each other. But maybe even more pointedly, we want to ask the question or we want to remember maybe that this is an apostle who is betraying Jesus Christ. What had Judas already done according to the gospel of Luke that we've been studying for previous months? He's preached the gospel of repentance calling people to come to Christ in faith. He has healed the sick. Judas has exercised demons. Judas has taken the bread from Jesus' hands at that table. And what does he do? He goes and betrays his Lord. The Lord's Supper is always a meal that confronts false professors in faith. Do you not think that it is possible that someone in here today, maybe it is you, have walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for years, served with power and with public notice the Lord Jesus Christ, come to His table and feasted with Him, yet your heart is actually far from Him, that you haven't come to Him in faith. The Lord's Supper, this is why in the subsequent reflection in the New Testament, we always find this call to examine ourselves before we come to this table. It's not just a consummation, It's also a confrontation calling us to genuinely close in faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But we do want to end finally with the great truth that the Lord's Supper is a meal of celebration. And here's how you want to see that. Look back at verse 19 and 20. Now see if you can notice in those verses the two-word phrase Jesus mentions twice. You see it in verse 19. This is my body which is given for you. Verse 20. This cup is poured out for you. This is where you plunge into the depths of Christ's eternal love for sinners, given for you. There's this titan of theology in the 19th century that often gets forgotten. It's a man named John Duncan. He was a professor of Hebrew in Edinburgh and Scotland. He was a missionary to the Jews and was so successful in both of those callings that he was affectionately known as Rabbi Duncan. And he was full of these pithy sayings. He was a somewhat eccentric man and eclectic in all of his tastes and the ways that he spoke about the Lord. But he was striking oftentimes with what he would say of his friends or what he would say about Jesus Christ. And the story is told that one day he's administering uh, the Lord's Supper in and around a church in Edinburgh. And if you know of a communion as it was going on at that time in the Scottish church, it was a very long, drawn-out ordeal. It would take days, this communion season. And what would happen on the day of communion when the elements were given, the entire congregation would come in groups of like eight or ten to sit at an actual table at the front of the room. And when everyone was seated, the presiding minister would give a a brief sermon to each group. And the elements would be passed around. There would be a prayer said. And then comes forward the next group. Oftentimes it would take seven or eight hours to get the entire congregation fed these elements of the Lord's Supper. And on this occasion, uh, Rabbi Duncan noticed that as the bread went around, there's a woman across the table with tears streaming down her face, letting the bread pass by. And he seemed to know enough about this woman to recognize that she was kind of in that moment of self-examination, struggling to believe that she was worthy enough to take this meal. So here comes the cup. It goes around the table with more tears bathing her face. It passes her by. And Rabbi Duncan, when the elements got back to him, did something uh, rather outrageous for that time in Scotland. He stood up, taking these elements, went over to the woman and placed them before her and said, Take it, woman. It is for sinners. It is for sinners. We have a meal that is for you. We have a Savior that is for you. We have a body broken that is for you. We have blood shed that is for you. Because Christ, our Passover Lamb, has come and died in our place. So when we come to this table, we come, yes, to a table that does confront us, that does point us to the consummation of all things. But what a table of celebration it ought to be. As we come, knowing our own hearts, saying, He is for me, our Passover lamb. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our only redeemer, who is our precious Passover lamb, whose blood was shed that we might not know the penalty our sins deserve, but instead know the joy of salvation. Uh, the freedom of forgiveness. So help us, we pray, to walk in fullness of faith towards Christ Jesus. Help us to come to him in faith and repentance if we haven't yet. 
Help us indeed to live a life that's full of celebration towards the King who has come and is coming again. We do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.